Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Those are verses 33 to 36 of Romans 11, which form the prayer that I'm going to use to begin this broadcast today. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're going to go through these last, what, 10 days-ish or so of Advent, and we've, so we've finished up the, the divine mercy attributes. And now I want to look at sort of the, the world into which Jesus came and, and sort of look at you know, the, the Roman world that he came into, but also, and, and equally important, if not more so, the Jewish world that Jesus was born into. And so you're going to get some history, and you're going to get maybe a little bit better understanding of the people that he spoke with and um, the, the reason that maybe that he came at that particular time. I, I do believe there, there, is, uh, there are very good reasons that Jesus came into history as the hinge of history at that particular time. And when I say the hinge of history, I mean that, that the whole world basically marks its calendars around him. So whether they call it A.D. and B.C., which is certainly the way that I grew up, or whether it's uh, B.C.E. and C.E., which is the more common way that it's used today uh, in our, quote, post-Christian wor- world, and, and B.C.E. means before the common era, and C.E. means the common era, it's still based around Jesus. Um, <laughs> but they, they just try and take that out of the mix in, in order to be more politically correct and less offensive to people who don't believe what we believe. So I, I believe there, there are good reasons that he came exactly when he did into the world. Um, it, it's, I believe completely, so you'll know, in the sovereignty of God. I believe in all those things like omniscience, which is God knows everything before it happens. I believe in the omnipotence of God, that he can do anything that he'd like to do. I believe in the omnipresence of God, that he is everywhere at all times, that, that He is ne- you're never away from God. I believe what David wrote in Psalm 139 is absolutely true. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, you're there. Wherever I go, I can't get away from you. And ultimately, I find that to be the most comforting thing I could ever know in the world. And so what I want to do is is kind of back up and get a, get an understanding of the situation. And I could just tell you who was in charge. You know, Herod the Great is a client of Rome, and, and he is the one in charge of the area um, of the Promised Land, or that which was left of the Promised Land, which was a very small sliver from Jerusalem north up to the Galilee. So we're not talking about a very large slice of of the promised land, because remember the the uh, northern kingdom, which was ten tribes, which would be um, about eighty percent of the uh, entirety of the land, was taken over and and gone uh, about seven hundred years prior to Jesus's birth, and so there was very little left of the land, and they were not in charge of their own land. Uh, in fact, in many ways, they weren't even in charge of determining who the high priest was at the time of Jesus. They were appointed by political rulers, not 
the people themselves, that they, they didn't raise up from inside. It was a political position as much as it was anything else. And so what I want to do is kind of set the stage for that. And, and I can't just tell you these things about Herod. There's a lot to know. There's a lot of background to this, and there's a lot of conflict that's happened over about a 300-year period. You remember the people came back to the land um, about 600, well, about 500 years prior to Jesus's birth, they had come back from Babylon. Those who had gone into exile had come back from Babylon, rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple and all that stuff under Nehemiah. They rebuilt the the walls of Jerusalem and then rebuilt Jerusalem. And then under Ezra uh, and Zechariah, <clears throat> that you'll see the, the temple being rebuilt. Well, it was rebuilt again, actually, but it was a civic project on behalf of the Jews that was undertaken um, by Herod, actually. And so I, I want to talk about how did we get to this point? What are Who are the players? And, and what are the tensions? And some of these tensions date back a very long time. It was a very uh, tenuous grip that the, the, uh, the Jewish people had on, the la- on, on what, what they could control in the land. Um, Rome had brought a certain amount of peace— and a certain amount of prosperity as well, because it became a trade, part of a trading route, and all those kinds of things. It became less a, a religious city, and and more of a trading kind of a place. And so they 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 couldn't control whether the gates were open or not in Jerusalem. That that was not under religious control. It was under civic control, and the civic control was was held by Rome. So so how do we get there? And, and what are the tensions? Why are the why are the Jews so constantly concerned, for instance, when Jesus comes into town on Palm Sunday, they want him to be quiet or the Romans will get upset. Well, what did they fear? Why did they fear that? And it's because there had been multiple rebellions over the past 300 plus years. Um, so the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was written in about the fourth century uh, before Christ. So, so there's, there's a long prophetic silence into which Jesus comes. But that doesn't mean there was nothing going on in those 400 years. There was an awful lot going on. So I'm going to give you some of that background of that that explains the, the anxiety that many Jews had uh, about Jesus and about his claim and about the idea of, of that, he, that Pilate said he is king of the Jews. There's a, that's a very tense idea. That, that could cause them to lose everything. And so that, what they didn't do was they didn't trust God. They wanted an earthly monarch to come in and throw the Romans out and take charge of everything. And so Jesus didn't seem to be heading in that direction. He wasn't bringing people together and and calling for insurrection as others had done. And in fact, they wouldn't have been happy at all if he had done anything like that, because that would that would most certainly have ruined the party, as it did only about four decades or a little less after Jesus's death on the cross and the resurrection. So what I want to do is give you a little bit of the history of that. I'm going to spend a few days probably giving you the history because there's a lot. There's a lot there, and it's all important to understanding the situation Jesus came into. So uh, we're going to begin at about 323 years before Jesus's birth with Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great had this great empire, and and he died young. And so after his death, what happened was is that they they decided, okay, we're going to put that under uh, this person's purview, and then he put generals in charge of this that person, not Alexander, the person who was raised up into the position of sort of being the overseer. He divided uh, control to generals, 
and those generals then were, were overseeing disparate parts of the empire. And so ultimately what happened was that that was overthrown. It didn't hang together at all. But, but the, the Greek culture that Alexander had brought into all the conquered lands was something that people found to be very valuable and decided that this was something worth keeping. And so all over that region, there was a lot of what is known as Hellenizing influence. And that, that's, that means that Greek society and Greek culture had been triumphant, and it, it held things together because it was a higher form of culture in many cases. And so it brought peace and stability in places that needed it. It also brought great prosperity in many places. So ultimately, when it's broken up after Alexander, then you get an empire that's based in Syria that rules over the, the region, that rules over the region that includes Jerusalem and all the way up through Galilee, so what, what would be known as the land. That part of the land that was still Jewish would be, would be under overseen by by the rulers in Syria, and they were called the Seleucid Empire, S-E-L-E-U-C-I-D. So initially, they they wanted that. It was a welcome thing because it brought peace and it brought stability. It brought protection because they they, they were very very vulnerable. They didn't have standing armies that that could that were capable of actually keeping anybody out. It was that they were they were weak at this time because they were small. And so they were incredibly vulnerable. So, but what happens is, is that ultimately that Hellenizing influence, the Greek culture being superimposed into Judaism, into that Jewish culture, was a problem. Not only that, but there was also religious persecution that came with it, and, and including the Seleucid Empire took upon itself the authority to appoint the high priests in Jerusalem. And so then what happened was is that 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 priesthood, because it was appointed by civil authorities, became a very politicized thing. And so you're not getting people in there who are, whose desire it is to lead the people to God. No, you get people who are beholden to their overlords, and the overlord is not Yahweh. So that the Jewish political leaders began to seek this out because they saw that was a way of having power over the people. So they could exert political power through the office of high priest. So now we're going to jump forward. You're going to be really happy about this. We're going to jump forward 150 years. So we're not going to stay in the 4th century. We're going to move all the way into the 2nd century. And we got a guy there. This guy's name in 175 B.C., his name is Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's Antiochus IV. He took the throne, and then he decided that he was really going to persecute the Jews. He made some bad mistakes of his own. He, he decided uh, only five years later, he decided, oh, I'm thinking I'm going to take on Egypt. Well, he got it handed to him and sent home. And, and he wasn't in a good mood when he got home. But the first thing he did, one of the very first things he did, he wanted the temple treasury because while they might be small, there was still a, a Jewish diaspora. So that would be the people, the Jews who had spread all over that region, including as far as Rome, but then in many other places during the occupation by Babylon. And they didn't come back. Only a very small portion of the exiles who went into Babylon actually came back. A huge Jewish population in Babylon. We'll talk about that later. But those people still had an obligation. They had an obligation to the temple. And so these wealthy Jews in other parts of the world would 
would pay. They would come and they would make pilgrimage and they would pay into the temple treasury. So they might have been small as far as numbers in the land are concerned, but that does not mean they were not wealthy and prosperous across the world. And so they had a religious obligation to support the temple. And not only that, they they had a desire within themselves to do that very thing. Because Jerusalem has always been central and significant to the Jews of the Diaspora, even now. And one of the things that it's interesting, one of the one part of Jewish uh, ideas about uh, what happens in the resurrection is this, those who are in the land or who are buried in the land are the first that are resurrected. Those who are resurrected outside the land become essentially like bowling balls, and they go through subterranean tunnels, and they go all the way back to the land, and when they get there, they're resurrected. But, but, but it's, it's not a painless thing to do that. It's penance. It's sort of like an idea about purgatory. You know, you got to be purged from your sins, and your main sin is you weren't in the land because it was wrong for Jews to be outside the land. So one of the things they did was then they provided lavishly for the temple because it, it, it had the central role in Judaism. Judaism at that time was, was unrecognizable to Jews without the temple, because that, was, that signified the presence of God, and it signified the power of God. So, while, like I said, while they may not have been many in the land, there were many spread all over the world who still considered it truly important to support the temple in Jerusalem. And so, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes recognizes this, and then what he does is he removed the high priest and replaced him with the high priest's brother because he was more amenable to the Seleucid desires and designs for the area. Jason was his name, the, the new priest. He started bringing about those Hellenizing changes. He was making them more Greek and accommodating the Jewish faith to Greek ways. He, he made it a Greek city, in essence, and it made it a wealthy place, but it, it became less recognizable as Jewish, and that was a problem for a lot of people. There were others who welcomed those changes because it brought prosperity, and so those people ultimately become the Sadducees, and they become the important people because they cooperated with those who were overseers there and those who were occupiers of the land. They, they, they cooperated with them, so they were um, blessed, let's say, by those who were over them. And so they accommodated and they took out those things that had to do with resurrection and angels and all that kind of stuff because, well, that just sounds kind of silly to a Greek mind, to a philosophical mind. That doesn't make any sense. That's religious stuff. Well, the problem is they began to become the, the high priests. But, but they see, they don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in any of those kinds of things. They are way more materialist. They are way more Greek in the way they think. And so that's how they become so influential along the way. We'll talk more about that later. I just want to give you a little flavor of it now. So, like I said, about five years later, he decides he's going to go. He, Antiochus Epiphanes, decides he's going to go into Egypt and conquer Egypt, and he, and, and he gets sent home with his tail between his legs. And so at, while he was gone, though, the Jews in Jerusalem decided this is a great time for us to, to do a, a little rebellion. Well, because he got it handed to him in Egypt, he's now in a mind to put this down so that he can actually still feel good about himself and still show that he has power. And so what he did was he, he, he made a man named Menelaus, who was a Benjamite, the high priest in exchange for a bribe. 
Well, there's two problems here. One is he took a bribe in order to make somebody the high priest, but the other side is the high priestly family is not the tribe of Benjamin. So riots broke out in Jerusalem over that appointment, and he put down the rebellion and, and solidified the, the position of Menelaus, who was in charge there, that he's the high priest. So he, he also stationed Gentile troops in Jerusalem who set up Syrian gods in the temple and defied Jewish, defiled Jewish worship by sacrificing swine on the altar. He then decided, well, I'm going to take their religion away from them. I'm going to make it very difficult for them. And so he outlawed things like circumcision, Sabbath day observance. In other words, you don't get a day off. And and one of the great things about Judaism is, is that everybody in the land, your slaves, your servants, everybody got the day off. And so that one day was an unusual thing in the world at that time. And it was even more unusual that it applied to non-Jews. It applied to everyone in the land, and it applied equally to everyone in the land. So on that day, there's a reminder that we are all equal. I don't have any control over you. I'm not allowed by law to make you work on the Sabbath for me. And so he took that away, Antiochus did. He took that away from them um, in addition to things like circumcision. Now, how do we know who's a Jew? If we're going to take circumcision away, if we're not going to allow that. And then he also took away all the temple ritual from them. And as I said, he sacrificed pigs on the altar in 167, and then he sacrificed to Zeus, and then he was cruel to those who practiced Judaism. In that same year that he, that he sacrificed the pigs on the altar of the temple, and that was a Greek custom. It wasn't done just to infuriate the Jews. It was part of what they did, but, but it was done to, to infuriate the Jews. It, it could have been done somewhere else. It, it didn't need to be done in the Jewish temple. And so about that time, there was this when the rebellion began, the thing that we know is commemorated in Hanukkah, and that, and that is the, the Maccabean Revolt. It begins in 167, and we're going to talk about the, the beginning of that today, and then and we'll begin to look a little bit more at it tomorrow. So there's an old priest and an elder named Mattathias, and Mattathias was there, and, and the the, um, the Seleucids came and, and made him an offer. They said, why don't you go ahead and sacrifice? Because as, as the priests go, so go the people, was the idea. And so they offered Mattathias the opportunity, <laughs> the opportunity of a lifetime, right, to defile the altar by, by making a pagan sacrifice there. He refused to do it. But while he's standing there, another priest, another Israelite, decided, I'll make that sacrifice. And so as he walked to the altar, you can find this story in the first book of the Maccabees, M-A-C-C-A-B-E-E-S, the first book of the Maccabees. It's it's a historical book. It's not included in the canon of Scripture. It's considered to be in in what we know as the Apocrypha. It's uh, an idealized history, let's say, as opposed to an actual history. It's told in order to to put across a certain viewpoint, as opposed to what you get in like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which are very honest accounts of the failures of the people. The, the Maccabees is not written like that. So in First Maccabees two, you'll find the story of Mattathias. So if you can look it up, you go to Bible Gateway, and you can go to uh, go to any Catholicized. 
uh, version of the Bible. Uh, the RSV is one, the Revised Standard Version. You can find the Catholicized version of it there, and, and there you can find those books of the Apocrypha. And, and both Jews and Christians alike treat those books the same way, which is to say we think they, they're beneficial, but they're not authoritative. We, we don't consider them at the same level. We consider the books that are in the Scriptures themselves. So that's how they look at that. So anyway, this is the Maccabees. So Mattathias is offered the opportunity to, to be a hero for the Seleucid Empire and make this pagan sacrifice, and he refuses to do it. So another Israelite comes forward to make that sacrifice, and when he does, Mattathias is ultimately completely enraged, and he kills that Israelite as well as the official who demanded that sacrifice to be made. Well, you can imagine that that, that means you've got to do one other thing, too. You've got to get you know, the what out of Dodge. And so they fled for safety, and so they left there. And, and that decision to fight to defend the faith was triggered by a slaughter of Jews over a conflict about working on the Sabbath itself. And because of this, the rebels decided they would fight even on the Sabbath to save Judaism. They decided that that, that fighting on the Sabbath, if, if that's what was required, to, to save Judaism itself was okay. And so sort of the, the whole idea of this revolt begins right there with, with the refusal of Mattathias to offer a sacrifice to a pagan god in the temple in Jerusalem, and, and then his murder of one who decided to do it. Well, you know, he's probably got pretty decent warrant for being able to do that, um, except he should have left that to God, in my mind. you know, And I'm not going to argue and quibble too much with that, because I don't quibble with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's decision. For instance, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, a Lutheran pastor, who decided to join the plot to assassinate Hitler. After writing that, that it was his duty to submit to civil authorities, he, he changed his mind once he saw how bad things could be. And so here, that's exactly the decision Mattathias takes, is to say, no, you're not going to defile this altar. I'm not going to allow it. And so he kills the official as well as the Israelite who had offered that sacrifice. And here we go into this period of Jewish revolt against um, foreign leadership that's going to happen again and again and again prior to the birth of Jesus. And we'll pick up tomorrow in that place with the Maccabees.